Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Tejas Parashar. My guest today is Stephen Klein, author of the new book, The Work of Politics, Making a Democratic Welfare State. Stephen is a lecturer in political theory in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. He received his PhD in political science from the University of Chicago in 2016. And prior to joining KCL, he was assistant professor of political science at the University of Florida. He has also held fellowships from the European University Institute in Florence and the American Academy in Berlin. Stephen's research focuses on democratic theory, critical social theory, theories of political economy and the welfare state, the theory and politics of European integration, and the history of European social and political thought with a special focus on 19th and 20th century Germany. His first book, which we'll be discussing today, is titled The Work of Politics, Making a Democratic Welfare State, and was just published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. The Work of Politics examines the democratic potential of struggles over welfare institutions in the 19th and 20th centuries. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to chat about your book. Thank you so much for having me and for the invitation. Great. So because uh, we overlapped very briefly in graduate school at Chicago, I caught the very tail end of your project. Um, but I'm curious about its beginning. So what what drew you in the first place to writing a book about the welfare state um, as as a both a historical problem and a theoretical one? Yeah, great. Thank you. So um, I think like many um scholars working today, some of the seeds for this project were planted after the 2008 financial crisis. And you could say the return of questions of political economy and capitalism to the agenda intellectually within academia. And so one aspect of the book that um, that was kind of the origins was kind of thinking about where does capitalism and political economy fit into debates within political theory? And um, the welfare state being, of course, a kind of crucial uh, historical state of, of interaction between the structure of the economy and um, and and politics and democratic politics in general. So that's kind of one one seed was um, that that feeling. The second um, feeling was that a kind of frustration with my fellow political theorists, who I felt like were too pessimistic about um, the 
politics of the welfare state as it arose in the mid 20th century and were too, um, you could say, held captive by concepts and ideas that come from thinkers like Foucault, uh, Michel Foucault, and other kind of mid 20th century social and political theorists who really emphasized, you could say, the downsides or the dark sides of the welfare state, which in retrospect, you know, we I think from the vantage point of today, we can see a lot more democratic potential in the historical moments they were looking at, which then brought me to kind of the last thread of, of thinking in this book, which was really to think through historically the ways in which political theorists, the concepts we use are shaped by past political struggles and might limit how we um, view the welfare state or these other things historically. So the book as a whole is a kind of, uh, you could say, an effort to rescue the welfare state from some of these conceptual deadlocks within political theory, um, but more generally also just an effort to think about how do we reincorporate these questions of the organization of capitalism into debates within political theory. Great. Uh, I th- and I thought um, on this point that it would be good for us to clarify terms a bit and, and situate your book. So as you note, the welfare state has been examined by a number of political theories. You mentioned Foucault, but uh, in your book, you also discuss Sheldon Wolin and Nancy Fraser. Um, and there has also been literature on the welfare state by a range of political scientists, sociologists, and others. So how has the welfare state generally been understood in both in political theory and in cognate social sciences? Exactly what kind of regime are we dealing with here? Great. Yeah. And I, so it's a great question. One thing I'll, you know, I, I, I use the terminology of the welfare state, obviously, in the title and elsewhere. Um, but in the book, I tend to talk more about welfare institutions because one, one pitfall of using the language of the welfare state is it can produce a kind of overly seamless picture of the sort of thing we're talking about when actually there's a lot of different institutions we associate with the welfare state. Um, so most generally, I think of the welfare state as the kind of the, the, uh, the emerging institutions that began in the 19th century that transferred certain forms of material reproduction or direct material support for citizens away from the market or from the family and to the state itself. So regimes like uh, things like health insurance, uh, old age insurance, and then also various forms of anti-poverty and um, uh, programs are concerned for the housing conditions of workers and so on, all of which arose in response to the process of, of capitalist industrialization and centralization in the 19th century and then through the 20th century. So I have this. So that's kind of my broad view of what we're talking about when we talk about the welfare state, transferring over these kinds of um, functions that have historically been carried out either by the family and local communities or in the 18th century, more by the market and market exchange. And then within the social sciences, you know, there's there's sort of two very dominant ways, uh, and political theory, there are two very dominant ways of thinking about the welfare state that I'm skeptical of, which are in the background for this. So one is a very reductive vision that kind of views all, the, 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 all this stuff as just a way to defend capitalism from the working class or from revolution and so on. So they see the welfare state as simply a counter-revolutionary uh, project of uh, the state stepping in to solve and uh, kind of pacify the working class through social welfare programs. And I think this kind of historical view is in the background for a lot of contemporary political theorists like um, Sheldon Woolen um, and others who, who really position the welfare state as a way to kind of enlarge the power of the state in the face of various forms of democratic claims or democratic movements. So that's kind of a pessimistic take. And then there's a very optimistic take that you see more in the social sciences, but it's also in political science, uh, political theory, which is that the welfare state kind of compensates for the failures of the market. So there are various goods such as health or insurance that is not adequately provided for by the market. So there's what economists would call a market failure. 
And in the face of those market failures, the state kind of steps in to provide these goods that help markets function better. Um, and in both these cases, you get this picture of a kind of seamless integration between the welfare state, these welfare state institutions um, and capitalism, you could say. Um, and then my view um, is indebted to another strand of social scientific research that really emphasizes the kind of historical conflicts within the evolution of these institutions within, within the welfare state. And so views all social welfare institutions as kind of tentative settlements in ongoing historical political conflict without asserting that any axis of conflict is necessary, funda necessarily fundamental. So obviously the conflict between employers and workers has been central, but as I look at it in the book, so has conflict between around say gender hierarchies or racial hierarchies and how these institutions have evolved. Um, and so scholars who have advanced this argument um, really argue that welfare institutions kind of arise from histor the historic power of social movements like the workers' movement um, and their ability to kind of assert their agenda in the context of very complex political situations. And one key historical moment where these kinds of contestations emerge is late 19th Germany, which which plays a central role in the narrative of the book. Um, you, you give us a sense of how debates between the Social Democratic Party or the SPD and Bismarck's regime from the 1870s in Germany led to certain kinds of contestations that have been really important for the history of the welfare state. Could you give us a, 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 a sort of brief outline of the concrete dynamics of late 19th century that led to these kinds of disagreements and these kinds of contestations over the meaning of the welfare state. Yeah, yeah, great. So I really see that kind of historical moment as kind of ground zero for thinking about the welfare state. Um, in part, it's because, so Bismarck in, in the uh, late 19th century, when he's chancellor, um, as a conservative chancellor in a kind of quasi-authoritarian system, which Germany was at the time, so you had elections uh, for the Reichstag, but there was not universal, uh, you know, equal universal suffrage because of the three-tier voting system in Prussia. And of course, the chancellor still served at the pleasure of the emperor and not um, wasn't democrat directly democratically accountable to the parliament. So Bismarck, in this moment when he's kind of shielded in many ways from democratic conflict, embarks on this historically remarkable program of building the first modern social welfare state. And so he basically proposes a series of national social insurance laws that build on um, what was at the time a kind of patchwork around Germany um, of various social insurance provisions. And, um, uh, and so this is this, in some ways, this is kind of where all our theories and debate around the welfare state come from. Was this an effort to simply pacify the working class and defend the old conservative order? I mean, to the extent that's what Bismarck was doing, um, was this actually a kind of modernization of German society that created opportunities for democratic agents like the working class to act against that? Um, and so there's, I think at the time you see this very intensive debate about what exactly does it mean that this conservative chancellor is supporting the creation of a modern welfare state? Does that show actually how powerful the various forces demanding democracy in Germany were? Or does it show how the welfare state is actually a tool of defending the power and privilege of these older elites? Um, and so I'll just also say, you know, so one thing that's very remarkable is that Bismarck does this at this historical moment, even though he's a very conservative figure. The other factor that, of course, is at play here is at the time, the Socialist Party in Germany is the largest organized workers party in Europe and really in many ways the first mass political party. Um, and Bismarck is is engaging in a, a kind of 
both repression, he's using a carrot and stick approach because he's at the time also passing various anti-socialist laws to try to repress the activities of the Socialist Party. And he's also passing these social insurance laws to try to, in his mind, win workers over from the Socialist Party and secure their loyalty to the, the um, emperor and to the imperial order of the, of the Reich. And so this really presents the socialists with this enormous dilemma of how do you react to um, uh, this, uh, in some ways, victory for their agenda and in other ways, kind of potential threat to their uh, political movement. And did the kind of revisionist strand that emerged in the Social Democratic Party at the end of the 19th century um, relate to welfare institutions in any unique way? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of a figure like Edward Bernstein. Yeah, so he, um, so yeah, so this is part of what's in the background for the revisionism debate is what to make of social reform and the politics of social reform. Um, And so there are two kind of, um, you could say, currents or debates that break out. So there's there's two axes to the revisionism debate that then occurs within the Socialist Party within Germany. So one is the debate among intellectuals like Edward Bernstein uh, and others. Um, and Bernstein himself, for example, in his essay, The Concept of Democracy, directly refers to these sorts of social welfare institutions as potential sites of democracy for a kind of revision, revised socialist program. Um, so you have on the one hand kind of intellectuals who are saying, look, this is proof that if we had genuine democracy in Germany, there would be a kind of cross-class alliance in support of reforming capitalism and indeed socializing capitalism in various ways. And then on a more pragmatic level, um, you have a lot of trade union leaders and um, kind of political activists who aren't intellectuals who then become intimately involved in the operation of the German welfare state. And this is what I think is really interesting is you actually get the entrance of a lot of political actors into running these various welfare institutions and a lot of people who point to these as potential avenues for organizing workers and empowering workers. Um, And so a lot of, you could say, a lot of threads of revisionist socialism are pointing to the potential of the, you could say, Bismarckian welfare state as a potential pathway to um, organizing for more fundamental reforms. But I think it's important to note, none of these revisionists thought that there would just be like an alliance with Bismarck or an alliance with the old German elites to achieve this. They just saw this as the seed of a more fundamental democratization of German society. And then, of course, the more orthodox Marxists had to figure out how to respond to these developments, because in some ways it showed that Um, you could say capitalism was more politically flexible than they had recognized. And they need to figure out also kind of what approach do we want to take to, uh, to these, the, the emergence of this new politics of the welfare state. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was struck by is just how much of a German story, the the story of the welfare state became in the 19th century or or of welfare institutions. I mean, is, is there a reason for that? You do discuss that there's a kind of pre-Bismarckian history of managerialism and bureaucracy and mm-hmm. thinking about bureaucracy in Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of one, one aspect of the book is I almost, you know, try to do a kind of intellectual history of what I call social liberalism, which was very strong in Germany. So this is a kind of uh, internal debate with among more, you could say, skeptical of democracy, liberal thinkers who over time become more and more um, uh uh, supportive of various types of social welfare institutions, but it's a great question. So you know, this is uh, this is a hugely studied social scientific question. Why did Germany was Germany kind of the first to establish these social welfare institutions, um, and then historically, other countries that were trying to establish social welfare states really looked to Germany either as a model or as a cautionary tale when they were doing this. So, for example, in America, 
when they were trying to create old age insurance. Um, one argument that was often used against it is this is the German solution to doing this. It's too Germanic. Similarly, in England, when England started thinking about national welfare institutions, Germany was often seen as the model. Um, I think, I mean, part of it, I think a lot of it has to do with the peculiar political structure of German society, right? The fact that Germany underwent a kind of partial democratization and a partial nationalization, federalization through the unification of, of the Reich, and then a very rapid industrialization that gave rise to this very militant working class reaction to all of that, right? And so, whereas like England was able to integrate the working class earlier through universal suffrage, in Germany, universal suffrage was seen as much more threatening because of the independent power of the Socialist Party. Um, and so I think you could say one argument you can make is that welfare institutions were a kind of uh, a solution to those dilemmas. So that's one thing I think is the case. And then I look, you know, I look very deeply into the history of German thinking about this. And there's this tradition going back to the 16th century of um, what scholars call Kameral Wissenschaft, so the sciences of state that really are kind of proto-welfare state thinking. And so it also has to do with the kind of, I think, as you already mentioned, the kind of emphasis in Germany on an independent bureaucratic state as a solution to social problems makes German, made German um, political leaders and also kind of civil uh, servants really open and eager to build these kinds of national uh, state institutions, again, in part as an alternative to political democracy. Yeah. And when we follow this debate into the turn of the 20th century, this debate between statehood, democracy, welfare, bureaucracy, when we uh, follow it into the turn of the 20th century, we encounter the figure who's really pivotal in the book, uh, namely Max Weber. So could you give us a sense about how of how uh, Weber is responding to this debate around welfare and democracy that's already occurring before he begins yeah, so his own reflections? Completely. Yeah. And so as you say, you know, for me, he's he's this pivotal figure. He's kind of like the hero anti-hero of the book, I could I would say, right? Because in many ways, I'm a very Weberian thinker in how I think about the welfare state um, and politics. But he's also, I see, as a kind of um, the source of a lot of the, the ideas I want to criticize. He's the one who really s- tries to reduce the welfare state to instrumental reasoning, to calculation, to bureaucracy in a way that seems to foreclose democratic politics. And so he is living at this crucial moment in German history. So he's living kind of at the end of Bismarck's reign. And then through this rise of new forms of mass politics and mass political conflict within Germany, he's observing all of this. And as I argue in the book, he's kind of his entire, I think, a lot of his intellectual project is really about trying to resolve this tension between his liberalism and his commitments to certain liberal ideas and um, the threat to, you could say, established power that was posed by the socialists and the socialist party. And so he really, in his sociology, so his kind of vision of sociology in a way is an effort to think what could a alternative to either you could say the Bismarckian conservatism and also to socialism. What could that look like? And for him, the welfare state is kind of central to that because in his view, the welfare state can become a tool for trying to integrate workers into the democratic system, trying to make into a kind of elitist democratic system. So a democratic system organized around various elites. Um, and so he, when he's writing his sociology in his entire career, he's in a kind of dialogue with the socialist party of Germany and socialist activists and trying to think through, well, what could a German state look like that would be as kind of confident and self-assertive as, as the UK um, and other countries, but that would successfully kind of integrate workers into that political order. 
And so I think he develops a very sophisticated account of how that would work in a way that is kind of trying to break loose of these earlier theories of the state that really view the state as kind of this overarching framework that can successfully resolve all of these political conflicts. And so I look at how he's in this tradition of what I call social liberalism, um, but is kind of breaking with earlier thinkers like Gustav Schmoller and others who are this earlier generation. And then the final step of that is that there's a way in which we are all then Weberians. So political theorists accept a lot of the Weberian analysis. So when we talk about people like Sheldon Woolen, who you mentioned earlier, his view of the welfare state is so deeply indebted to Weber that you start to wonder, is he just reproducing the position of someone who's fundamentally trying to um, develop a path that would kind of limit the effects of democracy on German society? Yeah. And could you say a little bit about how uh, Weber's theories of charismatic authority and his ideas about the extraordinary, which, you know, political theorists like Andreas Kalivas have picked up on, how these related to his broader views of bureaucracy and the welfare uh, state? Yeah, great. So this, yeah, let me think of the, uh, so it's a very, you know, he's such an extraordinary complex thinker. Mm. And so, um, uh, and I try, you know, as you probably saw when you read the book, like one of the challenges of the book was trying to organize such a diverse and complex body of thought that Weber's produced. Um, but part, you know, when you think about what Weber's up to, I really see Weber as kind of the, the um, illegitimate stepchild of Kant and Nietzsche. So on the one hand, he's deeply Kantian in that he has this ideal of kind of, um, of autonomy that's really grounded in kind of affirming your values and as ends in themselves. So there's really this ideal of the, what he calls a personality who comes to adopt this position of what are your ultimate values and really kind of committing to those values. Then he's deeply Nietzschean in, as well in that he doesn't think these values are kind of rationally given to us. He thinks they arise historically through um, religion and other sorts of social movements that he groups under this category of charisma. And so what kind of the basis of his theory of, of how societies work is this idea that we have needs, you know, we have kind of material needs for sustenance and these needs give rise to various forms of instrumentally rational forms of action like market exchange or um, bureaucratic rationality. And then we have these extraordinary needs for meaning in the face of human suffering, which is an idea he gets straight from Nietzsche. And it's these extraordinary needs that give rise to what he calls charismatic forms of politics or charismatic movements, which is just a very general category to capture all sorts of social and political movements that appeal to our need for meaning and for an explanation of how the world is. And so one upshot of this is that you have a kind of long history of these charismatic movements, and they go all the way back to kind of ancient forms of, you know, what he is drawing on anthropology to study. So ancient forms of kind of magic and, and rituals, all the way through to the socialist movement. So he really interprets kind of modern politics and things like the socialist movements as the latest in, incarnation of these charismatic uh, uh, politics. And then on the other side, you have all the institutions that arise to kind of satisfy our material needs, which we can actually um, calculate and are, are, can be subject to various forms of means, ends, instrumental calculation. And so this is really the bureaucratic state and the welfare state, you know, in modern times. So he sees the welfare state as kind of the victory in some ways of our material needs over our charismatic needs. And in Weber's political worldview, I mean, he really has this kind of view that what we need is we need to kind of accept the inevitability of these kind of bureaucratic institutions like the welfare state that just are focused on meeting our material needs and then have kind of charismatic leaders who occasionally 
rally the masses to prevent these bureaucratic institutions from becoming kind of too overgrown. But he really believes that has to come from a kind of leadership perspective. It has to be a leader who does this. And so he's very hostile or skeptical to kind of ordinary, everyday citizens, you could say, advancing very collectively their non-material needs, their needs for belonging, or their democratic needs. And so in a way, he reduces democracy to various modes of satisfying these, to charisma, and says, look, these needs can be met by having the right sort of leaders who satisfy people's charismatic needs, and, and in combination with the welfare state that meets their material needs. And so it's a fundamentally, I think, very elitist picture of how the world works, um, that's deeply rooted in his kind of very basic categories. And it's kind of a brilliant argument. It's a brilliant project in a way, right? He gets a lot of leverage out of this. He can interpret huge swaths of human history through the lens of this divide between the extraordinary and the ordinary. Um, but I think it fundamentally biases his whole account towards a kind of elitist politics. Hmm. So the charismatic and the extraordinary for Weber is always extra institutional in some sense, or at least extra status. Ex- exactly. Extra institutional, extra status. So it's both kind of a threat in a certain way, right? Because it challenges what he sees as kind of institutions that foster hierarchy and obedience and order. But it's also very necessary for him because he worries about these institutions becoming rigid and sclerolic and, you know, um, overly fixed. And so he has a kind of, you can say it's almost like a ebbs and it's an ebb and flow model. You have charismatic moves that have to arise to challenge these institutions, but then get reabsorbed into them and routinized over time and kind of become part of just the kind of get, get reabsorbed into instrumentally rational forms of action in these institutions. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And against the Weberian perspective, you defend a view of welfare institutions as, quote, worldly mediators. Now, um, this is a term that you developed through readings of Heidegger and especially Hannah Arendt. Could you say a little more about this term, worldly mediators, and how it relates to um, the welfare state? Completely. And so this is where the book kind of changes gears a little bit from more historical. So it's very historically grounded still, but kind of is using... Um, the intellectual history more just to develop a kind of freestanding theory of how the welfare state operates. And so um, one thread of the book is I kind of recover this dialogue between Arendt and Weber's concepts. And I recover it via Heidegger, because I think there is this kind of, in the background for what Hannah Arendt was up to was a kind of implicit dialogue with Weber's thoughts. So Hannah Arendt, in many ways, is, you know, is, uh, again, a very complicated figure, Um, arguably, you know, not the most fully democratic or fully inclusive thinker, obviously has a lot of blind spots in her thinking. But I do think there are some core concepts she develops that really are helpful for thinking about a more democratic 
politics within the welfare state. And so the key concept I develop is her notion of worldliness. And so in a lot of kind of people who work in a rent or study a rent, we really emphasize her category of action and the public sphere. And again, this is seen as kind of an extraordinary thing, right? That a rent is valorizing extraordinary modes of collective action that escape the means ends logic of the social or these other domains. And so this is kind of a very, you could say, Weberian reading of a rent's thought. And against this, I really look at her concept of world and worldliness, which calls attention to how we live in a world where the that's structured always based on instrumental and non-instrumental considerations. Um, and so one of her key examples is a, is a table, right? So a table is a kind of tool. It's an instrument. It serves a function. That function, obviously, is to like hold things up. Um, but it also is a worldly object insofar as it draws us into relations with other people. And we might also judge not just whether it's a good table for fulfilling this function, but whether it's a kind of an aesthetically pleasing table. We make he, she, she thinks we're making constant judgments about the shape of the world that is not merely about whether things are useful, instrumentally useful. Um, and I extend this idea, which she develops in a kind of philosophical register, to think about the welfare state. And so, for example, let me give you an example to make this more concrete. Think about a social insurance system like the like social security in America. Now, obviously, part of social security is very instrumentally rational. We try to, you know, make correct calculations about how much money we're going to need in the future so we can pay people's retirement benefits. It's a way to kind of overcome various cognitive deficiencies people might have in terms of saving rationally for when they can no longer work. But on the flip side, like think about the fact that every American gets a social security card when they're a kid, and this is part of their identity. And this creates a kind of worldly relationship with the state and with each other that isn't merely about, you know, ensuring people save enough money for their retirement. It's a symbol of their belonging in society. It's this kind of symbol of their of their of the dignity of the elderly to, to uh, participate in social security. There's a whole set of kind of symbolism and aesthetics that go along with that institution that constructs relationships between people that aren't just about you know, ensuring that they've saved enough money for retirement. So that's, I. so Arendt's kind of basic concept of worldly mediators, I think, really challenges Weber's notion that these institutions are just about bureaucratic means ends, kind of calculation of our, our material needs. Her point is like for, for material needs to become part of the political world, we already have to kind of give them in, a material institutional shape. And in doing that, we actually construct objects that then can become um, uh, uh, scenes for political, collective political mobilization and political action, and that we judge not just in terms of whether they solve this technical problem, but also in terms of do these adequately, you know, create a shared world for us to act in together as democratic agents. And Arendt is responding to Weber um, in, in formulating this idea. So I make this argument uh, that there is a genealogy here that runs from Weber to Arendt, um, uh, in part because, um, so I mentioned already that that Weber is kind of the, the child of Kant and Nietzsche um, and is part of this historical moment in Germany when people were trying to develop a theory of values that would overcome the pitfalls of the Kantian theory but retain a lot of Kant's ideas around the nature of, of autonomy and the self. And so I, I try to argue in the book that Heidegger and Arendt were kind of both responding to this effort. So Heidegger quite directly. So Heidegger's dissertation supervisor, Rickert, was the main intellectual influence on Weber. And then Arendt more indirectly, she's absorbing this debate through Heidegger and repurposing it for a kind of more democratic theory. Um, and 
so I, I can't remember if I left this in the book, but I think Arendt was quite um, circumspect about how critical she was of Weber because her dissertation supervisor, so she obviously studied with Heidegger, but did not write under him for reasons that people may be familiar with. Um, and she studied with Karl Jaspers instead. And Jaspers was one of Weber's closest friends and acquaintances. Um, and in the post-war period, Jaspers is really one of the people that really tries to canonize Max Weber as a one of the most important German thinkers, and indeed one of the most important philosophers in history. He tries to compare Weber to Socrates. And so I, I think that Arendt was actually quite reticent in overly, overtly criticizing Weber because of she didn't want to offend Jaspers. This is somewhat speculative, but there's a lot of evidence that Weber, that Arendt had Weber's thought in mind when she was developing a lot of these ideas and a lot of these categories. Um, so part of it is this biographical connection. Part of it is actually looking at the German, her German translations of books like The Human Condition, The Vita Activa, where the terminology is much more Weberian. So um, she translates rule as Herrschaft, which is also the term that Weber uses for domination. So I do think it was a kind of, I think she saw Weber as a key interlocutor for her, her thought. Great. So I want to come back to the theme of domination in a second. But first, I just want to stay on um, uh, Arendt um, and just ask you that your interpretation of Arendt does go against a view that has been dominant in political theory since at least the work of Hannah Pitkin, um, mm-hmm. which is of Arendt as a hostile critic of collapsing um, the political and the social. So mm-hmm. view being that what Arendt says of Locke is what she thinks of social and economic questions more generally. Um <laughs> Could you say a little bit about how you relate to this interpretation? Yeah, great. So, yeah, so there's this longstanding, you know, one of the, everyone has this, I feel like many political theorists have this experience reading Arendt, you know, where they read the chapter on action in the human condition, they read some of her essays, they read parts of On Revolution, and they see this vibrant defense of political participation, of collective democratic action, this deep skepticism to all the kinds of intellectual maneuvers that historically have been used to kind of argue against democracy. And they're like, yes. I, I really can get behind this. And then they read what she writes about the social question in particular in On Revolution. And they're kind of horrified because what Arendt seems to be saying is that one of the main pathologies of modern politics is that we've let these economic issues kind of enter into politics and therefore, um, you know, and they've overwhelmed and, and crowded out these genuinely political issues. And often in her argument, it seems like she's saying like the problem in Europe is that they tried to solve these social problems um, well, in America, you know, they had a good separation between the political and the economic, and that's what has enabled America to be a more viable democracy. And I think it's much, I actually think she's up to something much more complex and much more subtle. So at times, she certainly seems to think this, right? She has a kind of view that these are problems that can be kind of solved technically, and so don't admit of um, genuine political degree, disagreement and debate. But I actually think if you really look at her argument, she's saying something differently. She's not saying that we shouldn't discuss economic or social problems in politics. Rather, she's saying that the kind of modern, the loss of these worldly locations for these issues makes it so that social problems appear as technical problems that can be solved by experts and by the bureaucratic state. And so the real issue is actually the loss of of what she calls world and not the blurring of the boundary between the political and the economic. And so this is part of a kind of revisionist history of Arendt that actually says she's much more skeptical of ancient Greece for the way that the ancient Greece has separated the public from the private. And that actually she's quite comfortable with various forms of economic and social problems entering into politics. 
She just thinks that we need the kind of the right sort of democratic institutions in place for us to approach those problems as political problems that admit that require political solutions rather than as technical bureaucratic problems. And this she traces back this process of what she calls world alienation that's very multifaceted and complex for her, but that one of the one of the consequences of it is that it makes economic issues in the economy appear as a domain of technical calculation. Right. And so so the economy being made into um, a private matter and, and not not a sphere of action is what's the, what, exactly. what the main target. And, yeah. it's, and the economy being turned into a kind of object that can be calculated and controlled so that either it's a private matter that's separate from the public or when it enters the public, she says, it just turns the public into one great household, hmm. right? She says, this is the problem. The problem is not that we're trying to figure out what to do economically. It's that we're viewing the public in terms of a household that can be managed by a technocratic leader, by a kind of central planner or or a bureaucratic elite or a Keynesian planner, whatever it is, all of which are kind of these deeply apolitical or depoliticized models of what the economy is about. And so this is, I think this is to an extent what she was getting at. But of course, I also grant that this isn't, you know, there are moments at which she doesn't seem to be saying this. So I also try to think through and criticize Arendt and say, like, I actually think, you know, this is why she couldn't, she didn't necessarily take these ideas in the direction I think they should go. And I also try to interrogate some of her own blind spots or, or contradictions. So I don't see her as like, so part of it's revisionist, but part of it's also, you know, you could say recuperative, right? I'm trying to just draw these concepts out of her thought and then maybe use them in ways that she herself wouldn't have necessarily intended. Hmm. And one of the blind spots is this um, theory and idea of domination, which has been so central to political theory, not just in the work of Philip Pettit, but, you know, we can also think of Foucault. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's a major part of the normative side of the book's argument. So could you give us a sense of what what work domination as an idea is doing for you? Yeah, for sure. So one of yeah. So I do think Arendt, I think she again, this is her proximity to Heidegger. She ends up retreating into a kind of you could say cultural romanticism at times rather than, a, I think, a robust enough concern with relations of domination and relations of power. So she gets so concerned with kind of rescuing certain forms of worldliness. So she says, like, for example, artists are really the reservoir of worldliness today that she, I think, loses sight to lose the sight of a worry about different forms of domination that manifest like in the real world rather as kind of philosophical ideas. And so a lot, so I am a kind of domination thinker in a way, right? So I think domination is really, um, I find it to be the most useful normative concept for thinking about politics as opposed to say injustice, which we don't have to get into now, but that's kind of my approach because domination really draws our attention to the relational, the problem of, of, of our relationships to other and people exercising power over each other. And so um, the kind of normative thrust of the book is trying to think about, so we have this this very complex historical story, which I've been talking about already about kind of the rise of the welfare state in Germany and Weber and Arendt and all of this theoretical stuff. But the kind of upshot of the book or the takeaway is that what I'm trying to do is think about the conditions under which welfare institutions could be enabling for struggles against domination in society. Um, and so that, so from a normative perspective, because the concept of domination is really about relationships between us, between groups that are, that don't pass certain tests of justification that don't enable, you could say, the the right sort of relationships between people that are inherently unequal and um, where one group or individual exercises power over another, 
I really think those are the kind of those are what we should start from in thinking about what do we want from the welfare state, or what do we want from any institution? We want them to help us re- realize certain relationships of non-domination with each other. Um, and so, um, in the book, I develop this concept of, of non-domination that builds on people like Pettit and also other, but a lot of other thinkers to try to develop a more multi-layered concept of domination that can really help us see the different ways that the welfare state relates to domination and the different ways that social movements can use the welfare state to fight these relationships of domination throughout society. And political participation in the state plays a central role in your theory of non-domination. Yeah, because, you know, for my theory of non-domination, so Pettit, for example, who really focuses on, on groups not exercising power over other groups, participation or, or individuals not exercising power over other individuals as a kind of external thing, right? Participation doesn't really play a necessary role in his account of, of non-domination because I'm really concerned with also forms of domination that manifest themselves by through exclusion from processes of collective political self-determination. Um, I, I put participation much more central to my account of domination because part of what we want from relationships of non-domination is for us to be able to determine the rules of our collective interaction without those rules being biased towards any group within society, such as men or capitalists, or so on. And the only way to realize that is to have processes of collective participation um, that enable all individuals to kind of to participate in the formulation of the rules governing our collective life. Yeah. Um, so so um, kind of workers' organization as a political force plays a central role. Exactly. Here, right? Ex- yeah. yeah. And or, for example... Um, if we're thinking about um, uh, uh, gender domination, it's not enough just to sort of realize and pr- produce institutions that um, uh, you say give women the right to exit various forms of domineering relationships like, uh, you know, the right to divorce and so on. Really to think about kind of what are the processes through which we're to, to developing collective social norms and collective norms of social interaction. And are those processes systematically um uh, bias towards one group in society. So this is what I call more uh, the level of what I call reflexive power. So not just the power who has power over each other, but who has the power to actually determine the, the norms governing our collective interaction. And if you get to get at that level, we need to think about kind of how can organizations representing workers participate directly, say, in the governing of welfare institutions and so on, so that we can say, say in an ongoing way, no group has the ability to bias the rules of our interaction towards their interests and towards their desires. Hmm. Now, it's particularly interesting then, I think that um, poli- even political theorists like Sheldon Wolin, for whom political participation is so important, never took this kind of uh, non-domination aspect of political participation very seriously. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. You know, if you think about, so, you know, my my book is kind of uh, in reaction to a lot of what you could call radical democratic theory in political theory. So these are people indebted to Sheldon Woolen, um, but also thinkers like Jacques Rancière, um, uh, Andreas Kalivas, who you mentioned earlier, his book, Democracy and the Politics of the Extraordinary, who are all very worried about kind of rescuing various forms of democratic participation. But I think they sometimes have an overly kind of existentialist almost attitude towards these moments of participation. There's a kind of romanticism about, about it, right? What we're really looking for is kind of heroic moments where um, various forms of collective self-determination can break through the ossified top-down modern state, what Wolin even calls a kind of inverted totalitarianism. Um, And I, you know, I'm much more 
because I think I'm, I start from this problem of domination, I'm really worried about kind of sustaining much more mundane forms of participation and thinking about participation in the context of, of the bureaucratic state and the administrative state. So I don't believe that, you know, we need to revert to New England town halls to have good forms of democratic participation. We can have complex organized actors. We can have bureaucracy. We can have all these things that are kind of part of the modern state. and We can make it more participatory on an ongoing basis rather than looking to these kind of moments of, of extraordinary rupture with the established order to get the participation that we're looking for. And when the book moves out of the German context, which shaped Weber, Heidegger, and even Arendt um, to a large extent, we have a case study of the Swedish welfare state. And you track some of these themes of non-domination and political participation uh, by focusing on, on the Swedish case. So why, why Sweden? Yeah, you know, in some ways I kind of want, so I picked, there, there are kind of two reasons I picked these cases, um, uh, I, or episodes. I don't really think of them as cases. They're not like comparing them. It's not a social scientific kind of case selection enterprise. Um, uh, so one was that I was really interested in looking at kind of historical cases or episodes that are really central to the formation of theories of the welfare state. So I picked Germany because it was so central to the development of Weber, who was so influential <coughs> Sorry. And I picked Sweden in part because for the post-war debate around the welfare state and thinkers like Jürgen Habermas and others, Sweden really becomes the model then of the universal social democratic welfare state. So it's really interesting kind of looking at historically at the development of, of welfare state and to, of welfare states and the development of ideas around the welfare state in the cases that kind of are being interpreted by different political theorists. So Weber is kind of, his thought is providing an interpretation of the German welfare state. Similarly, someone like Jürgen Habermas, who I engage with, I see as kind of providing an interpretation of the potential limits of the universal social democratic welfare state, which is really embodied in Sweden. So that was one reason, was to kind of almost get leverage or to look at what people, what theorists are re responding to in their thought to try to see to what extent their thinking lines up with, with the reality or with, or with their alternative historical if there are alternative dimensions to these historical episodes that are left out of these theories. So that's one reason. The second, though, is I kind of saw uh, Sweden and Germany as kind of hard, in some ways, hard cases for my theory, right? So part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to show how even in Germany, which is seen as this extremely authoritarian, top-down welfare state, there are this, these spaces for democratic movements and democratic politics. And then I wanted to show how even in kind of what we, his, what often people look to as kind of the best quote unquote welfare state, the most developed welfare state in Sweden, there are still these deep and abiding structures of domination that influence the development of the welfare state. And so I really look at how gender domination structured the development of the Swedish welfare state, even in, in its heyday. So even to kind of not, and part of what I want to do is not take something like Sweden and say, look, this isn't the end point of what I'm arguing for. This isn't the kind of goal that I'm aspiring towards. Even in a case like Sweden, we have to take seriously how the welfare state remains bound to these different relationships and structures of domination, but then similarly how the welfare state enabled political actors and political movements to also challenge those structures of domination. Yeah. And did you find many differences between the Swedish case and the, and the German case? Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, I mean, in some ways I found you could say a lot of interesting similarities, even though they're quite disparate in how different social movements used, um, you could say, uh, repurposed welfare institutions and very bureaucratic institutions 
to be, turn them into sites of democratic organizing and, and collective action. So that's one interesting similarity. Um, of course, you know, they're, uh, they're in radically different historical moments and they're existing in response to very different sorts of historical pressures. And so um, uh, what I really look at in the Swedish case is how even in the moments at which Sweden seemed to be approaching a kind of, you could say, the, the goals of what the social democratic welfare state would be about, how persistent it was persistently was structured by relationships of domination, in that case, gender domination, although you could also expand to think about kind of post-colonial forms of domination and global hierarchies and, and other forms of domination, um, and how that kind of really actually influenced the material development of the welfare state in Sweden. So how that really structured, um, you could say, the possibilities that the welfare state was facing, but also the eventual the eventual crisis of the, of the Swedish welfare state um, quite later. And so, whereas in Germany, you kind of have this case of a kind of half-born welfare state that eventually, you know, and obviously ends in collapse eventually, and um, they are not able to resolve the internal contradictions of German society. In Sweden, you have this interesting case where you get a kind of full-fledged welfare state that nonetheless also suffers uh, due to internal contradictions that are born of various structures and relationships of domination in that society. Really interesting. Now, the history of these kinds of welfare states, I think, is is uh, fascinating in and of itself. But over the past year, the welfare state has also really returned to the center of political debate globally. Um, so in reading the conclusion to your book, I was actually thinking about things like the Green, Green New Deal, yeah. um, debates around climate justice, and then, you know, what's sometimes called this kind of return of neo-Keynesianism. Yeah. Right. Was all this on your mind as, as you were finishing up the book? Yeah. To an ex- you know, so... I was I was very much obviously one thing that's very you know I, I mentioned this in the preface as well I was, I was really writing the book also in the context of of the rise of these kind of new social movements and new political campaigns uh, focused around people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn who are trying to advance welfare state issues certainly things like the Green New Deal um, were on my mind um, I I will say though I feel like the past two or three years we've seen an even more dramatic shift in the nature of the debate um, uh, with COVID and um, kind of, and the extraordinary rise of this kind of, you could say, like you say, new Keynesian monetary regime. And so some of that was in the background. I think part of what I wanted to get across was like, was to, you know, I think often we have these narratives in politics, right, about kind of the seamless rise and decline of various historical phenomena. So we have the story of kind of the, the seamless rise of the welfare state and its seamless decline. And part of what I wanted to argue was like, no, look, it's always been a field of political struggle and it's always been very conflictual and very contradictory. And so it was meant, somebody's meant to support various calls today for new forms of social welfare politics and say like, look, we can view these as, as ways to empower social movements and democratic movements. So it was on my mind a little bit. I will say now, like for example, Joe, what, you know, the, the Biden administration in the U S has been much more, you could say pro-government than other recent American democratic administrations. I do think that the, the there's even more happening now that I've been thinking a lot about um, where that fits into the argument. And so I was hoping that the book could at least, I mean, it's a very academic book, but could to some extent help inform how we think about these political, this political moment, because we're going to see something very similar, I think, to what happened in the 19th century or after World War II, where you have, social ecological crises that demand a state response, but that are not necessarily going to lead to a democratic response. And um, we can think about, well, what are the conditions under which social movements or kind of forms of collective action 
can use these state responses to these crises to advance a more uh, democratic agenda in thinking about how to restructure society today. Yeah. I mean, it, and and just to pick up on that point, I think this this idea about collective action as something that's offered um, by the welfare state, I think for me, it really helped me to think about the welfare state outside of its relationship to an industrial working class. Yes. Right? The question that sometimes comes up is, well, the welfare state, state grew up at a time uh, when there was an industrial working class and we don't have that kind of class anymore. Completely. So what is the value of the welfare state now? And I think your book does help us to think through another answer. Yeah, and I really was hoping that I could sort of... So obviously having a certain moment of, of capitalism with concentrated workers and high degrees of, of class solidarity was certainly helpful in some contexts for some forms of welfare state formation. But one of the arguments of the book is it was always a, a political project of collective action. There was never a pre-given agent collective agent that generated these institutions. Um, and it was a much more complex um, and conflictual story. And so one of the arguments I make, I want to kind of, one of the takeaways I want people to see is that there's no necessary connection, as you say, between any single historical agent or any structure in capitalism and the welfare state. That welfare institutions are kind of responses to various forms of social crises or social and political need. And they can or cannot enable various forms of collective action. But it's ultimately a kind of political question of whether those forms of collective action um, get realized. Um, uh, you know, and I think there, there, I will say, though, I think there are challenges today that um, there are two, I'll just mention there are kind of two challenges today that I don't think the book necessarily sufficiently addresses, um, which I um, uh, have been thinking about a lot. So one is the kind of global nature, of a lot of these new social risks, and how to deal with with that aspect of things. I mean, this is both climate change and COVID have revealed various forms of kind of globalized, you could say, insecurity um, uh, that, um, and I do think we have to take seriously the the ties between the welfare state and nationalism and the rise of welfare chauvinism um, as, you know, the idea that the welfare state now is really being mobilized by nationalists as a, um, uh, uh, a way to challenge, you could say, challenges to globalized hierarchies. So that's one thing I worry about a lot that I didn't deal with in the book. And the second, this is what I'm also writing about now, is just in addition to the decline of the working class, the change of the structure of capitalism in terms of the rise of finance and credit and debt as kind of an, as and what we call neoliberalism, how that's transformed the nature of the economy and the nature of people's relationship to the state and the economy. I think those are two major challenges to reviving a kind of politics of the welfare state today that need to be um, that I didn't take seriously enough when I was writing the book. And is this your next project? So I'm, I'm not addressing the first as much as I should be. I mean, I'm thinking about it, but I'm really working on, in some ways, extending some of the kind of themes of the book in terms of collective action and this kind of give and take between the state and social movements to thinking about debt and credit. So that's the, the next project is kind of looking at, in somewhat in a similar way, saying, look, we have these very one-sided and one-dimensional pictures of the rise of finance and the rise of debt, and saying, actually, there are these kind of moments of collective action and democratic resistance to this process that could also become um, an occasion for democratic politics to challenge hierarchies organized around credit and debt today. Perfect. Looking forward to that project. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. This was a real pleasure. Thank you again for having me and for the uh, great questions and conversations. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat about the book. Great. And the book is titled The Work of Politics, um, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you, Stephen.